Ovid's Flea by P.J. Edgel Episode 7 Julian Julian had never been touched as much in his life, and the truth was he wasn't sure if he liked it. He appreciated the fact that people were happy to see Viola, and he loved the fact that she was happy and that he was accepted as her son. He remembered instantly liking Tommy, even as a kid, when he met him at the wedding. Tommy had introduced himself then as Uncle Tommy, and now just referred to himself in the same way, as if he'd always been in Julian's life. But the overly familiar touching by all the other men at the party was strange to him. People kissed him on the lips. He'd only ever kissed Redfield on the lips, and the intimacy with the strangers felt weird. Was this what people did in New York? It felt intimate and sexy, yet slightly invasive. Once all the commotion had died down and people stopped paying attention to him, Julian disengaged himself from Thomas' linked arm and excused himself, going to the bathroom to get some space. He sat on the rug for a time, just staring at his surroundings. It felt good to be away from all the people. The candy shop affect of all the men in New York had begun to lose its appeal as he felt himself becoming the sweet of choice in the room. The attention was too much. He liked having the freedom to stare openly, but wasn't so sure he liked being stared at. In the mirror, he watched himself breathe. His wounds from the fight with his father were fading, but still visible. He knew that they added to his cachet in the room, and it annoyed him. Beyond the gossip factor, would one person, apart from his mother's friend Tommy, really care what they had endured? What they have physically fought to survive to even be in this room? A knock on the door stopped his face study, and he flushed the toilet for effect and washed his hands. He opened the door to see a young man standing to the side, obviously anxious for him to get out. Sorry, I drank too much champagne. And with that, he nearly knocked Julian over to get in the bathroom. Julian went back to the party that was now back to concentrating on itself and not on him. It was a relief. As he surveyed the room, he didn't see Viola, but wasn't overly concerned as he knew she needed to catch up with friends especially Tommy. With a plate of food and a mimosa in hand, he found a corner of the balcony that allowed him to watch the parade and the party. He sat, eating the most delicious food and drinking the mimosa and, and knew that as ridiculous as it was, he wished that Riley Marie and Redfield were with him. Riley Marie would have loved it, especially the parade. People looked genuinely happy and free. He had never seen so many different types of people either. All races mixed together, all in different costumes. He could just hear her, damn, them people look happy. 
Look at all them crazy folks just swishing and sashaying down the street. Ooh, Lordy, Lordy, did you see her? She just about as naked as a jaybird, but damn, she looks happy. Y'all think she knows she ain't got nothing covering her titties but two rainbow stars? Or she as high as a kite on something and she thinks she's dancing in a mirror? What y'all think? Julian missed friends. He'd only had two, but he missed them. He'd have to make new ones, he knew, but it was too much to think about right now. He felt odd his entire life and had been alone for most of it. In Mississippi, he'd never felt comfortable and lived in fear of being found out until he met Riley Marie. With her, he learned the luxury of friendship. He missed her. And for now, he just wanted to pretend that this was before his friends betrayed him, that they were here, and that they were laughing at the spectacle of New York. He heard more Riley Marie. Baby boy, we ain't never seen, nor will we ever see a room like this one. This is someplace out of a movie, you hear me? Where did your mom's friends get these people? I mean, no man should ever be wearing his mama's old fishnets as a shirt and leather pants. Oh, no. He eat anymore, and we are all going to be recruited to peel him out of that number because we're the only ones here, young and able-bodied. <laughs> oh, Lord, we need to pray he's full. He turned away from looking at the man in case he saw him laughing. But not before the young man from the bathroom caught his eye and smiled. He came over to Julian. My uncle's a funky dresser, right? Caught. Julian spluttered on his mimosa as it burned the back of his throat. <coughs> yes, he is, Julian croaked and lowered his head towards his plate so he could hide his embarrassment at being caught laughing at someone. He knew it was rude. The young man sat down next to him and extended a hand. Xavier, and I was kidding you, he's not my uncle in the truest sense of the word. Julian took his hand. Julian, come again? He's not my blood uncle, but... Where are you from? Mississippi? Oh, I knew you weren't from here. No, he's just a good friend. When I came out, my family disowned me, so Drew, over there, became my family. You get over the look eventually, because he has a big heart. Julian felt terrible. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean no harm. No, of course not. I can tell you're not mean-spirited. Besides, I was just having fun with you. You're funny, because you looked both kind of lonely and yet you were laughing. You could be crazy, but I doubt it. Julian didn't quite know what to do with this person. He was so open, it was disarming and a little off-putting. It was part of this New York thing he was noticing that he didn't know how he felt about it. He couldn't name the thing, though. Like the kissing on the lips and the open staring, it was exhilarating, yet unsettling. Whatever it was, this guy was the closest thing to his own age he'd seen since arriving in New York. Jesse, 
The cried crowd was thick. He had always loved the fact that the spectacle of the parade made everyone come out. It had changed a little since he was there as a regular. You couldn't always tell gay from straight, he observed. Everyone mingled. He couldn't imagine this acceptance back in Michigan. Not that they didn't have gay people, but they lived in trendy towns like Royal Oak or Ferndale, not where he lived. That was all young families. Just like you. The boy mocked him and laughed. He shook his head. He had checked out of the hotel only to find out that Mark had paid the bill when he had left. It had made him feel like a whore and a fresh wave of shame washed over him. He only had a backpack, so he kept it with him. But it made it difficult to maneuver in the crowd. People jostled him, and at times it seemed like people would purposely hit his backpack, which would make him feel a little off kilter. As he continued to fight his way through the crowd, he held his phone tightly in his hand. It felt like some sort of security blanket on his last day. He liked to look down at the picture of Annie and the kids and remember the good times before the boy would remind him it was all a lie. No more lies, he thought, except for this last big one of drowning, the boy reminded him. He turned quickly down the street as if it would help him escape his own thoughts. But the sudden movement made him knock into someone who took the action as aggression and shoved him so hard he fell backwards off the curb and into the street, losing his balance. He landed on his back and backpack. His phone flew out of his hand. The backpack made it awkward for him to move, but with a huge effort, he managed to roll onto his side and then onto his knees. He saw his phone and started to crawl towards it, but didn't see the catering truck heading towards him until he heard his name scream, Jesse! He looked up and saw the truck. For a split second, he hesitated as the boy told him to stay and end the agony now. But he couldn't and screamed, no! Instinct made him tuck his body and with all his might, he rolled and avoided the truck. He felt a breeze from the truck passing him and then heard it screech to a halt. He knew he was on his back again, but this time there were people all around him. But a woman kept saying his name and when he opened his eyes, he saw the face of the woman who had been with Mark. Kimberly. The doorman had barely opened the door before Kimberly and Viola lit up their cigarettes like guilty schoolgirls. Kimberly took a long drag, and with an arm casually through Viola, she said, So, Julian doesn't know what you did before you met his father? Vi, you can't be serious. I told him a partial truth. I just left out the fact that the therapy was given while I was naked. It just never seemed appropriate as I was figuring out a way to escape. Okay, here's the plan. Oh, and by the way, I was a successful uh, escort, hooker, or madam for many years in New York. If you forget your toothbrush, we can buy one on the road. Don't go back. You see, it just doesn't flow. Okay, okay. I just don't want to think you're... Sh Holy shit, that's the guy from... Holy shit, Jesse! Kimberly saw the whole thing. The vicious shove, the fall, and him crawling towards his phone. And then she saw the truck, which he was obviously oblivious to. She screamed his name before realizing what was happening. And then she dragged a startled Viola towards where he lay in the street. She shoved people aside to get to him. She kept saying his name, and he opened his eyes and looked up at her. With Viola's help, Kimberly helped Jesse up and dusted him off. 
He was remarkably unharmed, except for a scratch below his eye and some miscellaneous scrapes on his arms. She told him her name and quickly introduced Viola. She said that she lived close and they should wash up his wounds. She moved quickly to stave off any awkwardness he might feel. She figured once she got him to the townhouse, she'd find out all about him. He didn't protest when she took his arm. They settled him into the living room. Viola and Kimberly went to the kitchen to get the first aid kit and drinks. So, are you going to tell me who that is and what this is all about? Viola asked as soon as they were out of earshot. I mean, honestly, I thought me arriving on your doorstep with my son was enough drama for one weekend, but I guess not. Kimberly was moving quickly. She didn't want him to get freaked out and slip away before she found out who he was. In the middle of working, Harrington, that guy walked in and freaked out. I want to know what the story is. And she left Viola to follow her. Back in the living room, Kimberly knelt on the floor beside his chair. As she put iodine on Scott, she was surprised that he spoke first. So, uh, I guess we should get over this awkwardness right away. Uh, how do you know Mark? We're old friends. I've known him for years. You? Our kids play peewee soccer together. We're soccer dads. He had a wry smile on his face. Kimberly tried to seem intent on his cut and mustard and... Oh, she knew there was more there had to be. Jesse's reaction was not that of a soccer dad away for the weekend with a buddy. And it wasn't that of a guy who wishes he thought Daya a hooker too. First of all, this guy was gay. She knew his reaction had been that of betrayal. And Harrington's response had confirmed it. But how had Harrington betrayed this man? She let the silence grow. It was pregnant. And Kimberly felt its expansion. But she didn't budge. She let the silence move around her and do its work. She finished addressing his cuts and scrapes. And as she moved away, he said, Can I talk to you about something? Get your professional opinion. Sure, she responded. She sat in the armchair closest to him. Jesse. The minute he'd seen the woman's face, he couldn't explain it, but he felt safe. And then when he went to her townhouse and saw the name Kimberly Simon psychotherapy on the door, he felt better. There was too much going on in his head. First, there was the boy and his silence. The boy was silent, and unlike other times, it, it seemed permanent, fatal even. Then there was the plan, which now felt less like his path and more like an option, and one that wasn't that attractive anymore. He needed to talk to someone, and who better than a psychotherapist? It didn't matter that she was Mark's old friend. How close could they really be? Mark was married, and he'd heard of his wife's reputation of being jealous and demanding, so when Kimberly had said they were old friends, he knew she meant his New York hookup. Jesse would be shocked if they ever communicated beyond that. He knew his secrets would be safe with her, so he decided to tell her everything. He needed to tell someone everything and just get it out of his head. He felt the intimacy of strangers knowing he'd probably never see this woman and what he assumed to be her lover again. Somehow he felt comforted to think she was a lesbian therapist. He cleared his throat and looking at Viola said, um, would you mind telling me who you are? I mean, are you? And with Kimberly, she said, we're, we're colleagues. colleagues. Now wild horses couldn't stop Jesse from talking. <laughs> two psychologists? That was better than two lesbians. 
What more could he ask for? I almost don't know where to begin. I know I just told you I have kids and I'm a soccer dad, but I'm married to a woman and I'm gay. Now that's not the problem. I've known I'm gay since I was about 10 and I lived openly gay for many years when I lived here in New York. Well, not exactly open. I never came out to my family. But that doesn't matter because I quit that life. I moved away and just disappeared from it. I met a woman, we got married, and moved back to Michigan where, where my family is. I have two kids. They are the most amazing things and so is my wife. She's beautiful and talented. She's an artist. Jesse took out his phone, showed them the picture of Annie and the kids. Kimberly took it and studied it. May I ask you a question? Viola interrupted, but didn't wait for a response. Does your wife know that you were, are gay? No. No, she can never know. No, she doesn't. I, I don't want her to ever know. I, I love her. I could never, ever hurt her or the kids. He took a breath. So, I'm gay. I'm happily married to a woman, and I thought I had it all under control. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but up until recently, it would be easy. Meet some guy, have sex, and go home, back to my family, and be okay, and, and no one got hurt. But then I met someone, someone I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and it all changed. It was Mark. Jesse noticed Kimberly looked startled, and then he thought maybe she had been in love with Mark as well. After all, she had been with him just last night. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I forgot that you were, I mean, the two of you, are you in love with him? No, no, not at all. I've always known I was one of many on Harrington's dance card. I just didn't realize he liked men. Well, I think I was his first, and since you're a therapist and I'm sure hurt at all, well, yesterday was the first time we ever did anything more than oral sex, and I'm I'm very safe. I have to be. Of of course, right. Continue, please. So you fell in love with Mark. Was he aware of your feelings? No, I never told him. I, I was hoping that this weekend would be a turning point in our relationship. I I was really wrong on that one, and that's what I can't get over. I I nearly ruined my entire life for someone who wasn't even thinking of me that way. I betrayed my wife emotionally. I was about to trade her in. I was about to betray her. I, I can't bear to think about it. For a split second today, when I saw the truck coming at me, I thought about just letting it hit me. As it is, I was thinking about... Jesse suddenly felt ridiculous. He was pouring out his innermost thoughts to total strangers. He stopped himself. You know... <laughs> Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. I think I should go. He stood up, but Kimberly and Viola both stood up as well, and Kimberly said, No, uh, don't go. Finish what you're saying. Viola added, We've all been betrayed, and whether intentionally or not, betrayed ourselves. Please continue. Trust me, in this place, there's nothing you could say that would shock us. Jesse's words spilled out before he could sit back down. I was planning to go home, have one last great night with my wife, and then kill myself. It would look like an accident so that she and the kids would be okay. There. It was out. Said out loud and the truth was it sounded too horrible. He sat back down in the chair, deflated. But now everything's changed. I just want to live my life with my wife and kids. I mean, we've built a great life. Can I go back now that I've betrayed her? It was a sense of relief that overtook Jesse as he made his last statement and asked the question. 
It was what had been nagging at him. Maybe he could just learn to live with his shame and desires. He'd been living a lie for so long that maybe he just needed to get a better way to navigate it. Kimberly was looking at him. Her gaze was intense. Jesse felt nervous and jumped when she spoke. Her words shot through the air. Well, Jesse, truth is you can do whatever the hell you want to do in this life. Jesse was a little taken back by the force of her words. I think you think it would be noble to kill yourself and give your wife the insurance money. That is ridiculous. Suicide isn't the most selfish thing you could ever do. How's that going to help your kids growing up without their father? Her words stung, but it felt good. Jesse felt clear for the first time. Go on, he said. Secondly, this notion of your life being so great before Mark is also bullshit. You were living a lie, albeit a comfortable lie, but a lie. And most of all, you were lying to yourself. That hurt the most. He never thought he'd find a therapist like this. She was brutal, but he couldn't deny that the truth made him feel alive. Go on, he said. Tell me more. Mark. There was a certain comfort for Mark in the art. It was a constant, never altered, always beautiful. And after this trip to New York, which turned out to be multi-dimensionally disappointing, he needed something to be reliable in its glory. Art did this for Mark. And the Guggenheim was one of his favorite places. Disappointment was an unusual emotion for Mark Harrington, and his reacquaintance with it reminded him of why he never really loosened control of his life, why he never let his wife or anyone else truly control anything. Anyone else would invariably disappoint. He heard her before he actually saw her. Her accented English sounded musical and soothing to his ears. When she turned the corner and caught his eye, he felt hope that what was left of the weekend could be salvaged. She was guiding a tour, jumping between Russian and English with ease, talking about a Russian artist Mark had never heard of, Kazimir Malevich. Malevich is father to modern abstract movement called suprematism. You see, he is pure form, minimalist. He preached complete departure from pictorial. Mark joined the group. She saw him and seemed amused as they looked at a painting, and then she said, Dosvidovich, which Mark took as goodbye. As the group dispersed, she stood to the side of the painting, looking at Mark. He approached the painting and, without looking at her, said, Very interesting, very beautiful. She said nothing and seemed to be waiting. Mark looked at his watch and decided it was best to cut to the chase. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Of course. I am Lubov. Again, she seemed to wait. I'm Mark. He offered his hand, to which she looked him straight in the eye as she shook it and then gestured for her to go ahead of him, and they went downstairs. There is coffee shop around corner out of tourist way. We go? Lubov suggested. Mark nodded, and they left the museum. Once settled into a booth, they stared at each other for a time, sizing each other up. Mark broke the silence. Are you a curator? I study to be one. Modern art. I study all over the world. A married old American of internet to get here. Oh, so you're married. Which truthfully mattered little to Mark, but it was conversation so he could get to where he needed to be. No, he divorced me after five years for a younger Asian woman. It worked well for me. And you? With that question, a smirk came across her face, which Mark took as favorable to the situation. In his experience of these encounters, the smirk meant 
We both know this small talk is a formality before we go back to her apartment for an afternoon of the physical arts. Yes, Mark answered, also smirking. Eight years, three kids. At this, the smirk on Yubov's face faded a little. You married woman? She asked him. At that statement, the smirk on Mark's face diminished a little. What? Of course. Yubov colored a little but shrugged. Forgive me. I still cannot read Americans. Who is straight? Who gay? What make you tick? My friends laugh at me often. She was charming in her confusion, Mark felt. Though he didn't appreciate the mistake about his sexuality, he was willing to overlook it if they could get to her apartment faster. He also shrugged, deciding to use this awkward moment to his advantage. Why don't we get out of here and go someplace more... He let the sentence trail off. Yubov looked at him blankly and then seemed to get his reference. You want sex? Now? With me? Mark felt her directness cut through the air. Yes. Yubov's laugh was unexpected as she threw her head back to laugh. She hit the table, knocked over a glass of water that spilled towards Mark's side of the table. He was quick, but not fast enough, as the water landed on his lap. To which Yubov laughed even harder. Her laugh ricocheted around the diner. She gasped for air as she tried to speak. So sorry, so sorry, I thought, I thought... I want a gay friend. I hear such fun things. I thought you were... could be him. So funny. So sorry about pants. And with that, she scooted out of the booth and left. Mark stood beside the table, looking after her as yet another unfamiliar emotion came across him. He was shocked that he had read the situation so wrong. His pants dried with the aid of a hand blower in the men's room. With that... He gave up on this weekend in New York. He made one last stop at a jeweler before heading to the airport. Julian. This was unexpected. To lose all track of time with someone who made him laugh nearly as hard as Riley Marie was the biggest surprise of his first day in New York. As if from another self, he watched Xavier tell him stories. Xavier was comfortable in his own skin. There was an ease about him that made you feel as if you'd known him for years. He might have been missing Riley Marie's drawl, but Xavier's sophisticated, non-accent accent made it fascinating to Julian. He could have listened to him speak all day. Were you out here for the beginning of the parade? He went on describing parts of the parade and people he knew and their stories. Julian was riveted. Now, how are you at being subtle? I'm good. I'm sure you are. After all, you were gay in Mississippi, and you're still alive. Julian smiled and thought, barely. He could have told tales, but decided against it. Xavier continued. Now, the man just over my left shoulder... Julian leaned forward as if to swat a fly off of Xavier's shoulder and glanced at the man. Wow, you are good, Xavier whispered. Nice move. Why, thank you, Julian responded, thinking Riley Marie would be proud. So what about him? So I've got your curiosity, do I? Well, he's suing the man, sitting, whispering to the cat-like, plastic-looking woman over my right shoulder. 
Don't do the fly move again. This crowd's quick. They'll catch on. From malpractice. See, the man on the right is his former best friend and one of New York's top plastic surgeons. So the man on the left went to him because he was aging and wanted to look like an even better version of his younger self. He actually wanted to look like Errol Flynn or Rock Hudson or one of those old timers. But his friend thought he was more the Cary Grant type and made him look more like him. This is the bullshit I spend my day working on. I went to law school and wanted to intern at this law firm because I thought I'd get to work on or just research some big gay civil rights suit. Something that mattered. And instead, I got stuck with the biggest gossipy case in the gay world. The only value, up until amusing you, was telling my Uncle Drew who's friends with both. The information I'm feeding him helps him maintain his edge. Julian was still laughing, even though Xavier seemed more frustrated than anything. Viola. Viola was fascinated by this exchange, but this was life in New York and life with Kimberly. Never a dull moment. She laughed inside herself. It felt good to be alive. The only thing that puzzled her was Kimberly's reaction, which seemed unnecessarily harsh. But then she thought about their conversation from last night. Seeing Harrington had disturbed Kimberly. She knew, but she didn't think her reaction was based on simple jealousy of Harrington. She had studied the picture in Jesse's phone. Was she jealous of what he was throwing away? Someone to love him and kids? Did Kimberly want kids? Since when? That didn't seem right for her. But then again, she didn't know what had really happened to her in the past ten years. Kimberly of ten years ago would have never let anyone near her face with a knife. And now she had had those surgeries. Or perhaps the mention of suicide, so close to the anniversary of Johnny's. Whatever it was, Kimberly was wound up. Viola could see it, but she was worried that her anger would push this man towards suicide, not away from it. She jumped in. I believe what my colleague is trying to say is there are certain facts that have remained true in your life. Number one is that you are gay. Number two is that you chose to leave an active homosexual lifestyle to marry a woman and live within a heterosexual lifestyle and not inform your wife of your earlier life choices, or really your true identity. So even though these were choices that you made, they were lies, if you will, because you were living unauthentically, and you seemed to think you could do this without some form of consequence. In short, you were living unconsciously. We're not judging you, but it's a simple fact that attempting to hide things, especially from yourself, will eventually, bluntly speaking, bite you in the ass. Do you understand? I think so. Because I left the gay life, married Annie without telling her, and then still fooled around with men, thinking it wouldn't affect my marriage, is the lie I was telling myself. Yes, exactly. You made a commitment to Annie, and she, without all the facts, 
made a commitment to you and has entrusted you with her life and well-being, both emotional and physical. And though you entered a period of insanity, let's call it with Mark, I would venture to say that what you thought deep down is that Mark would be the one who would restore you to yourself, so to speak, and you wouldn't have to live the lie. But I love Annie. I really am in love with her. Viola had noticed the pure disgust on Kimberly's face and was relieved that Jesse had been facing her and not seen it. But he turned towards Kimberly as she spoke to him patronizingly. I'm sure you do, but you are by your own admission gay. You can't have it both ways, especially since you made a commitment to Annie and brought children into this world. You have a responsibility, unless you're planning to tell Annie the truth and recreate your life while still honoring your responsibilities. Viola was torn between admiring her friend's brutality and concern for Jesse's mental health. He looked as if he was going to cry. The truth would kill her. She's had so much pain in her life. Her brother committed suicide, and last year we lost a baby. And yet you were thinking of killing yourself to help her. Kimberly's contempt had a very thin veil across it. Viola could see that she was still holding Jesse's phone tightly in her fist. She worried she might crush it. There was no denying that Jesse was struggling with everything she'd said to him. The weight of what Kimberly had thrown in his face had flattened him. Viola went over to his chair, sat on the edge, and rubbed his back. She spoke in soothing tones. Jesse, this isn't insurmountable. What you want is peace. The answer is within you. You have to ask yourself, what would make you feel peace? To go home. To be at home with Annie and the kids. I just want a second chance. Annie is my best friend, my... My soulmate. I used to call her my queen when we first started dating. She's perfect. She makes me so happy. The only reason I leave is for sex. His head was in his hands. Viola continued to rub his back and speak to him soothingly. Well then, give the queen the benefit of the doubt and tell her the truth. I, I can't. All of the lie, consciously. What? What? Viola nearly said it in unison with Jesse. Kimberly's words had startled them both, cutting through the air of concern Viola was trying to create. Kimberly was staring at Jesse with unmasked disdain, Viola felt. Kimberly continued, Go home. Live happily ever after with Annie and the kids and have discreet relationships on the side. But don't fool yourself. Know exactly what you're doing as you do it. Kimberly. Kimberly was spent. She wanted to know his story out of some sick sense of camaraderie. They both had been fucked by Mark Arrington. But she got more than she bargained for. The whole story had made her somewhat sick to her stomach. The one thing in her life she'd never done was lie to herself. Except once, when she thought that a couple quick cuts to her face would make her feel young again. Happy, maybe. And as in all lies, it hurt her more than anybody else in the end. But this Jesse character was going to hurt himself no matter what she said. She didn't think his wife and kids should go down with him. Jesse was staring at her. She managed to smile and hope that she indicated that the session was over. Viola was still sitting on the edge of Jesse's chair with her hand on his back, 
took to Kimberly's face and moved her hand to his shoulder and patted it and then stood up. Jesse seemed to get it and stood up grabbing his backpack. Viola hugged him, not allowing the awkwardness to return. Jesse seemed to cling to her for a moment and then disengage himself. Kimberly stepped towards him and extended her hand and then relented and drew him in towards her into an awkward embrace. Please take care of yourself. I hope we were able to be of some help. Thank you for everything. You've really given me a lot to think about, and I appreciate your kindness. Oh, my phone. Kimberly, forgetting that she had been clutching it, gave it back to him. Jesse was at the door and gone quickly. It seemed that once he got the message, he didn't want to linger either. Kimberly shut the door behind him and went to the kitchen, grabbed the scotch, a glass, and knocked a drink back before pouring another one and sitting at the kitchen table. Her movements were quick and precise. Viola sat down across from her. Are you in love with Mark Harrington? Hell no, Vi. Maybe I thought I had some sort of feelings for him, but honestly, I was just using him so I could feel something. I didn't. Then what was all that about? I'm all for brutal honesty, but you may have pushed that guy right over the edge. It was his wife and kids. I looked at the pictures and thought, what gives someone the right? To be so goddamn selfish. Suicide so he doesn't have to live with his shame. Oh, please, fuck him. He made his bed now lie in it. Kimberly took a vicious swig of her scotch. Kimmy, since when do you care about someone's wife and kids? I can't say that I do. It's just if I didn't shut him up, that guy would have sat here for hours whining and whining. Wasn't he getting on your last nerve? Honey, I've been in Hicksville for the past ten years. His whining was like pure theater to me. I could have sat for hours listening to the two of you and playing my role. Well, I couldn't take another minute of his pathetic ass. He satisfied my curiosity, and I was done with him. Kimberly knew her cheeks were flushed. Are you sure you're not in love with Mark Harrington? Positive. Let's talk about something else. Like, how come Julian doesn't know what you and I do for a living? Kimberly was still feeling angered by Jesse and knew she was taking it out on Viola, but her friend responded in kind. Gee, I don't know, Kimmy. I already told you. I never got a chance in between having the crap beat out of me. Stop changing the subject. You're lying to me. Something's up. Something's not gelling. Viola was right. Something wasn't gelling. And Kimberly thought it might be her mind. She felt as if it was disintegrating as she sat there. She felt she was drowning in her own gray matter. The dreams had come to life. Johnny was there in the room, and once again she'd let him down. Her throat was constricting. He was screaming, choking her. You selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed bitch. How could she have been so cruel as to push Jesse? Why couldn't she just have been nice for Annie's sake? What if he went home and did it? The unthinkable. It's not my fault, Johnny. It's not. Just as your death isn't mine, I couldn't have saved you. But she felt as if Johnny was ignoring her and tightening the grip on her throat. She tried to say it out loud. It's not my fault. But the words got stuck. She couldn't breathe. Viola grabbed her and stuck her face in a bag. Kimmy, what the hell is going on? Kimberly knew she had to answer Viola, if not for no other reason to save her sanity, bring herself back. His wife. I know. I know his wife. She's, it's Annie, Johnny's little sister. 
How? She's Asian. Now, with the truth out of her mouth, the vice lessened. Though her breath was ragged, she could speak full sentences. Why? Remember I told you they adopted her? His parents wanted a girl. She was one of those first little Asian girl adoptions. You know, when she walks through the door, everyone hides their shock that she's Annie Leventhal. Oh my God. I didn't recognize her. How did you? Jesus, why? You know my mother likes to torture me. I saw a picture, maybe even that picture, many years ago. He wasn't in it. You know damn well I've never spoken to any member of his family since then. No one's forgiven me for missing the funeral and never picking up the note. Obviously, our lives have gone in different directions. I'd heard she was married, but in my wildest dreams, I would never have thought it was to a gay guy who slept with Mark Arrington. Her morbid curiosity had invited Jesse into her home to feed off his pain, and it had backfired. Instead, she'd resurrected the ghost of Johnny. I killed Johnny, and for all I know, I sent this idiot to his death. What is it about me, Vi? Why do I destroy things? I've destroyed my face. What's next? With that, Johnny laughed out loud and hard, tightening the grip on her throat. Kimberly breathed deeper into the bag, trying to get breath. Her mind fought him, screaming, No, you're the selfish one. Maybe we did deserve each other. Johnny was silenced and for the time being went back to his place in the back of her head, waiting. Julian. So, you want to meet the famous Drew? I know he really wants to meet you. He adores your stepmother, Viola. With the mention of her name, Julian looked around the room for her, but didn't see her. He figured she must be in another room, catching up with Fran still. They stood up and went over to where Drew was holding court. Julian was reminded of Jabba the Hutt. The man looked like he was settled into a throne, and people surrounded him. For a second, Julian felt nervous, then felt ridiculous after realizing he was meeting a fat man in a fishnet shirt. Well, there you are. I've been waiting to meet you. The commanding familiarity was a little unsettling to Julian. Drew continued, So you're Viola's son. Now, I remember you from the wedding. Are you out now? Out of... Julian had an idea of what he meant, but... Decided playing the dumb Southerner was the only way to combat the New York directness when he found it unsettling. The closet. I knew ten years ago you and Viola would be back someday. We all knew that wasn't going to last. Especially Miss Jean. You didn't stay behind with your father, so I can't imagine I'm offending you. (laughs) Drew had stopped talking, but Julian was unsure if this meant he was supposed to respond. Drew's words formed statements, not questions. The pause seemed more for dramatic effect. The court sat surrounding King Drew, but all eyes were on Julian, studying him. He felt uncomfortable with the scrutiny. Xavier, sensing it and ignoring the court, spoke to Drew, cutting through the air. So, I gave Julian a guided tour of his first parade. From Dykes on Bikes to the Honorary Queen. Excellent! Julian, do you know who started or was one of the first queens of note? Your mother, Viola. Excuse me, sir, but 
she's not gay, the court tweeted at Julian's comment, which made him realize he said something that every gay New Yorker knew when he didn't. Julian, I know more than most that Viola is not gay. But the honorary queen is a straight woman, or hag, if you will, of note, who the K community adores and we make her our queen. Viola, being the smartest and cleverest psychologist and businesswoman I know. And with that, he winked and the court twitted again. Became our queen. Of course, Viola was the first and only to really make something of it. You know she knew how to play to a crowd. She was in a bikini with a huge Marie Antoinette wig and a crown in it. It sounds gaudy and gauche, but was actually quite elegant. Viola is so elegant. She's the classiest pro I've ever met. Something deep within Julian shifted as the blood drained from his face. That was it. That was the strangeness of the house. The men's robes and the glances exchanged whenever he brought up his mother's profession in front of Kimberly or Tommy. He felt like a fool. Why has she not trusted him with this? He felt the dozen or so mimosas returning to their entrance point. He felt cold and sweaty. The court was still laughing, and Xavier, noticing the green color his new friend was turning, grabbed his hand playfully so that the court would think what they always thought of young gay men and dragged him towards the bathroom, making it just in time for Julian to lose the majority of his brunch. Xavier stood against the door and handed Julian a towel after he washed his face. Well, that certainly can't be easy, finding out your mother's, uh... Go ahead and say it. Prostitute. Call girl. Whore. I just can't believe she never told me. I mean, she and I were, uh, close. It just doesn't make sense that she wouldn't tell me. Doesn't make sense. Look, I don't know Viola personally. I know of her. She's rather a legend. But what I do know is people, and as proud and defiant as she is reputed to be, all that can fly out the window in the face of someone you love and want to never disappoint. But you don't know what we've been through together, what we've endured. Well, let's see. You're gay, and from a small town in Mississippi, she's a former prostitute, and you have some cuts and bruises healing. I'm in the legal profession. I can figure it out. Look, all I'm saying is, don't be too hard on her. I don't pretend to know your story or what you two endured, but I know that parents are strange creatures and do strange things to protect the ones they love. That's all I'm saying. I don't think I can really take any more in. I need to go back. Okay. I'll get you out of here. Next time on Ovid's Flea. Uncle Tommy, it was amazing. A great first day in New York. Only a few more hours, she thought. You fool. Ovid's Flea is voiced by Patrick Bruis, Anita Charlassier, Pat Jones, 
Dan Johnson, Harry Wetzel, Reed Winfrey, and C.N. Yates. This is executive produced by Pavan Muzumdar with Jonathan Moises, C.N. Yates, and Pat Jones in conjunction with Arden Park Productions, LLC. The sound engineer is Nicholas Sapunos, and the sound was designed by Nicholas Sapunos and Pat Jones. Ovid's Fleet was made possible by the generosity of independent sponsors, as well as those through Kickstarter. The music is licensed through Grey Bliss Music or is a property of Arden Park Productions. Special thanks goes to Monica, Andrew, and Sophia Moore, Polish Scouting Studios and Anja Brozda, and Rick Gomes. To find out more about the world of Ovid's Fleet, go to ovidsflea.com.